video. I'm reading from the second psalm this morning. <clears throat> Why do the nations rage? And the, whoops, let's turn this on. There we go. I'll start over. Why do the nations rage and all the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and in terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the degree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Continue. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. God, Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for gathering us together today. And Lord, we ask that we be open ears to hear the word brought forth. Pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, Phil. Good morning. We will be finishing up in John chapter 7. If you want to turn there in your Bibles. This, um, yesterday, the Bascoms and Kristen and I, we were able to be in Bar Harbor for Tyler's installation service. Um, many of you, I think, watched it uh, online. I would encourage you, if you watched it, if you want to watch it, shoot them a message. I think I would really, really encourage them. Uh, it was bittersweet for us. Uh, Marty and I... <laughs> Didn't cry too much uh, in our parts, but, you know, be praying for their family. This transition is going to be a challenge for them. Uh, we, we participated in that when we came here a couple years ago. Um, but, you know, hopefully and Lord willing, it uh, will be a fruitful ministry for them in Bar Harbor. Uh, one thing I love about Vermont is with this smaller population, there's a good chance that if I run into somebody in town, there's a highly likely or high likelihood that one of you knows the person that I talked to. Marty's actually the one who I think knows the most people. We were in Plymouth, New Hampshire last year for our men's retreat, walking down the road in an ice cream shop, and he met someone that was good friends of his um, neighbor, I believe, up in Tunbridge. Um, surprisingly, he didn't know anybody when we were in Maine other than those who drove in the car with him today. But in California, when you ask somebody, do you know so-and-so, oftentimes they just know of the person. Here it's, well, I used to work with their father, or his sister and I, we went to school together, or I grew up on the farm next door to that person. 
And so this morning, as we finish our time in John chapter 7, we have lots of folks who think they know a lot about Jesus, but they don't know. We have people who are looking but don't see. We have people who hear and learn but have no sense of right judgment. I think they're just a bunch of Californians. So two things to remember as we jump into our text this morning. First, this is the section of intense hatred towards Jesus in John chapter 7 and John chapter 8. Remember verse 1 last week, the Jews were seeking to kill him. And second, Jesus' final words from last week, which was in verse 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So this morning we'll see that right, what right judgment is based on. It's knowledge from the Father, seeing what the Son does, and believing by the power of the Spirit. So will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. Would you help us to gain proper knowledge of it? God, we thank you that your Son came to die in our place on the cross. God, would you see would you help us to see him for who he truly is? And God, would you increase our belief and our assurance by the power of your spirit for our joy and for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we'll be looking at first verse 25. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, in John chapter 7. So some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, they said. When the Christ appears, he will do more signs than this man has done. And so these people, they come to confront Jesus. He's right in front of them, and they are not judging with right judgment. The people of Jerusalem, they're still questioning what is going on. Is this really him? And it was shocking to hear the threat of the Jews when Jesus was right there publicly teaching when they did nothing. And they say, would they let the Christ talk like this? Say the things that he is saying? Teach the things that he is teaching? Or maybe... Why don't they just follow him if he is truly the Christ? And John, as we've talked a lot about, is he loves irony. He loves to use words and ideas with two sets of meanings. And John, he wrote this gospel so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And he uses this circumstance to continue to make his case of who Jesus is and what he has done. And in verse 27, we see that the crowds, they know Jesus. They know of him. They know where he came from. 
They follow the teaching of their rabbis that the Messiah would be completely unknown to the people of Israel until he actually saved the people of Israel. They think they know of Christ, but they do not know where he comes from. That was not a biblical teaching of that the Christ would be hidden from them. They knew Jesus was from Galilee, but these Jerusalemites are not as informed as Jesus's of Jesus's true origin as they think. He's the eternal word from heaven, made flesh, and they were focusing on geography, where he was from. And so in verse 28, Jesus, he chimes in on their discussion. He's not going to let them just continue to have these thoughts. And he says, well, you know me. You know where I came from. But he clarifies, he didn't come on his own. The Father sent him. The Father is true. And very directly says to him, them, him, you do not know. They know some things, but they don't know what matters most. They don't know the Father. Jesus, he sticks the dagger in just a little bit and starts to turn. In verse 29, he says, I know him. I come from him. You do not know him. They don't know what matters most. They don't know God. And so they jump on the bandwagon of the Jews. Verse 30, they want to kill him too. But as we've seen over and over again in the Gospel of John, it's not his hour. We see again, it's not his hour to die in our place on the cross for our sins. The text doesn't say why no one laid hands on him other than it wasn't his hour. The Father is sovereignly in control, providentially working out these details that it wasn't Jesus' time to die yet. It wasn't the disciples who brought their swords out and the people got scared and so they didn't seek to kill him. It wasn't the Romans who were watching and so the Jews didn't have authority from their government right there in front of them to hold back their hands to kill Jesus. It wasn't that they began to plot Jesus. Well, well, we'll get him at a later date, maybe next week. It was God's providential hand working out his wise sovereignty which held them back. And while some wanted Jesus' life, in verse 31, it says, some also believed. They know, but they don't really know because they still said, well, when the Christ appears, remember, he's right in front of them, he will do more signs than this man has done. Don't we all want to just say, he's right there in front of you, and you're still missing it. And the conclusion of this section is that there's division of opinion here in the minds of the people. Some were frustrated, some were hopeful, but they were all confused where Jesus will be judged. And first and foremost, he will be judged by God's word. He won't be judged by worldly criteria. Where is he from? Where did he go? What did he say? If it doesn't line up with scripture, it's not right judgment. Judgment of Jesus to them, sorry, Jesus to them wasn't who they wanted him to be. And so we oftentimes need to consider the same thing. And so do you know Jesus? The Father reveals Jesus to us in the scriptures. You hear in our world, well, my Jesus, he doesn't judge. Or my Jesus doesn't want suffering. Or my Jesus is not as outdated. He's more progressive. My Jesus doesn't know what it's like to live in 2022. My Jesus says love is love. If we don't believe in the Jesus as revealed in the scripture, friends, there is no such thing as my Jesus. 
Jesus should be judged by God's word. Jesus said God's word is true, where God is true, and Jesus' words are on par with Scripture. And so when you think who you think Jesus is gets trumped by who God says Jesus is as his son. And the enemy, he loves to distort our understanding to who my Jesus is. And when God says to us, behold my son. We'll see how they respond in verse 32. Says the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion amongst the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So right judgment of Jesus is based on knowledge from the Father, seeing what Jesus the Son does and believing by the power of the Spirit. And so the Pharisees and the priests, they're never shy about a good argument. Jesus was teaching against their counsel, their teaching. Jesus was teaching against their counsel, their traditions. And so they sent the temple police after him to maintain some order amongst the people. And Jesus' response was, I'll be here a little longer. I think I'll just stay right here. I don't care who you're sending to come and get me. Again, it's not his time. And Jesus is more and more direct in declaring it now to these people. It's not his hour. And John doesn't need to interpret it for us this time for the readers. He just says Jesus' words, that it is not his time. He will stand, stay here a little bit longer. The dagger is growing a little bit deeper with these folks. says, I'm going to the Father, and later you'll seek me, but you will not find me because you can't come. They can't come because they don't know the Father. They don't know and they don't follow the Father's words. And the thoughts of geography for these guys, they keep going. Maybe he'll be going to the dispersion, to the Greeks, in verse 35. They didn't want him going to the Greeks. These Pharisees, they especially wanted to keep God's teaching for themselves. They didn't want to participate with what the world was doing. They wanted to separate themselves from the nations around them, not engaging with the nations. And so to them, in saying that Jesus would go to the Greeks was a dig towards Jesus because they think that if he did that, Jesus would be a bad teacher. There's more irony because after Jesus' departure, after his death and resurrection and his ascension, the gospel would carry forth to the Greek-speaking world, to the nations. The truth of the gospel would spread to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to the ends of the earth. And right judgment of Jesus is based on knowledge from the Father and seeing what the Son does, that he will die at his hour. Then he will rise, he will ascend, and so how do you know the Christ? Look at God's word, but also look at his actions. If he didn't rise from the dead, he should not be followed. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile 
and you are still in your sins. And so we saw in our first section that they thought they knew the Father, but they didn't know. Here, we will, here they will seek Jesus, but they won't find him. Friends, the only means of salvation is believing the gospel, the good news that God saves sinners through the life, through the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And how do you find Jesus is the most important question that we must answer in this life. And as one commentator says, the next three verses of the gospel draw our attention to one of the most memorable parts of the Festival of Tabernacles, this seven-day water ceremony. On each of the seven days prior to the final day, priests drew water for the pool of Siloam and carried a golden pitcher full of water to the temple and then around the altar with the high priest leading the way. And as the priest neared the water gate, the shofar, this big trumpet was blown and the psalms of praise and thanksgiving were sung for God's people for the harvest. And then during this time is when Jesus speaks up. We'll look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so, right judgment of Jesus is based on knowledge from the Father, seeing what the Son does, but also believing by the power of the Spirit. And we get some language that we saw back in John chapter 4. You might remember that when Jesus was with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, where the Feast of Tabernacles was the perfect time for Jesus to bring up these similar ideas and proclaim the metaphor that this festival represented and so how do you find Jesus? Well, Jesus says it's temple. It's simple that you believe. Verse 38, whoever believes in me as the scriptures has said. Judge Jesus by God's words, by his actions, and that's it. And then believe it. And the result of this belief, Jesus says, is out of one's heart will flow. It won't trickle. It won't be a seasonal brook. will flow liver will flow livers, will flow rivers of living water. It's an abundance of blessing. And with Jesus dying and rising, he will then send the Spirit. Those who believe will receive the Spirit, but not yet in the text, because Jesus has not been glorified in verse 39. They didn't know. They didn't find they won't receive the Spirit if they don't believe by the power of the Spirit. And Jesus is addressing here their unbelief. And as the Feast of Tabernacles, which uses water to celebrate, will end the next day after this, Jesus provides and promises to provide living water that will never run out. That he will be the living water and the light for the world forever. And so spring is coming at some point, I'm told, around here. Maybe today you'll get a little bit of a taste of it. It's May, so it can't be more than maybe two months away for spring. Some of you may be getting your gardens ready. I'm told that this summer might be a drier summer, so you might need to water your gardens. 
And I heard, or I would probably assume that many of you would prefer not to water your gardens and just allow rain, just not as much rain as we had last summer. In Isaiah 58, 11, he says, the Lord will guide you always. He says, you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Where God promises, friends, that he will sustain us forever. He will give us the living water, the water that never will run out and that it will even, or eventually flow out of us. This is good news. This is the best news. For these folks, he poked the bear again. He drove the dagger a little bit deeper. They don't know. They don't find. They don't believe. And it causes more and more confusion and hatred towards Jesus. And we get two responses to their unbelief as we finish up. We'll look at the first one in verse 40. It says, When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Two of the most significant titles for the coming Messiah are brought up here, the prophet and the Christ. And many of the Jews thought that the promised Messiah and the promised prophet were separate individuals. First, the prophet, this idea comes from Moses' words in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. Moses said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. The second is the Christ, the anointed one. It's also the Greek word for Messiah. It was clearly he was to be in the line of David from the town of Bethlehem, and it was clear that they knew where Jesus had come from. Again, geography. They, they thought he was from Galilee. Apparently, they didn't know where he was born, in Bethlehem. To them, Jesus was a Galilean, so he couldn't qualify to be the Messiah. So when we were in D.C. a couple weeks ago, we had a tour of the White House. And as we were going through, my kids thought it was the greatest thing ever because then they started to think about, well, what they would do if, Dad, you were the president. Maybe they would take the go-karts around the parking area. And then I asked them, well, do you think Dad could be the president? There's qualifications, right? There's three of them. You have to be 36 years old. I got that one covered. You have to be a natural-born U.S. citizen. I got that one covered, and you have to have lived in the United States for at least 14 years. So I could qualify to be the president. There are qualifications to be the Messiah as well, and the prophet. They didn't know the qualifications or if Jesus met those qualifications. The Jews have now moved on from disputing about Jesus' origin to his identity. Could he really be the Messiah? Could he really be the prophet? And their understanding comes from the limits of their own human minds and what they knew about him. And they divided because they were ignorant. Their poor judgment causes division. And it's not, and that is, sorry, and it's not that what causes the world around us to think about the church, especially in our country, as divided, as unappealing, 
Maybe you have some of these similar questions. Can he be fully God? Can he be fully man? Why would God punish sin if he is so loving? A loving God, shouldn't he just save everyone? This can't be true because what about the people who never heard about Jesus? These are legitimate questions that we have probably heard. Maybe you have asked. And unbelief causes division and arguments over who Jesus is. In sin, it distorts our understanding. It's proof that these folks don't know God from God's word as the Bible reveals and addresses all of those things and those questions that I answer, asked. The Bible answers the questions. We'll continue to pull out these truths as we look into God's word on Sundays, on Wednesdays, as we gather as God's people between those gatherings as well. They could have believed, but they didn't follow God's word. They didn't see Jesus' actions. They didn't believe by the power of the Spirit, and their hatred increases more and more as they don't judge with right judgment. Our second response, we'll look at verse 44 as we wrap up. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no one, no prophet arises from Galilee. So these Pharisees, they had sent that, those Roman guards, or these guards to keep some peace to arrest Jesus, and they come back without him. I'm sure the Pharisees were like, you had one job, to bring one man back, and they didn't do it. And so the Pharisees naturally ask, well, has he deceived you as well? Like the crowd asked back in verse 12, if you look up in the text. They don't want Jesus leading the people because it goes against their teaching. It goes against their instructions. It goes against what they wanted the Bible to do and say. They want to know immediately, has anyone else believed? The courtroom has now spread past Jesus. Not only is the division a result of unbelief, but persecution is a result as well. And the same thing happens all over the world today. Many Christians are asked today the same questions. Has anyone else believed? Do you believe? Do you know if anyone else is following Jesus? And if the answer is yes, for many Christians, that answer could lead to their death. It could lead to their imprisonment. It could lead to hardship for their family. I looked it up. In last year, over 3,500 Christians were martyred in Nigeria alone because they answered the question, yes. Persecution still happens today. And it may come to us as well at some point. But like the persecution the Christians face all over the world, when Jesus destroys the idols of false religions, ideologies, or ungodly governments, the same result happens today that the Pharisees proclaim. It says, let them be accursed. Verse 49, they don't know the law, so let them be accursed. They don't follow our religion. Let them be accursed. They don't follow our practices, so let them be accursed. What they're saying is, to hell 
with those people who believe in Jesus. They don't know the word of God, the person of Jesus or his actions, and so they don't believe. They think they know, but they don't. They think they have found, but they haven't. They have, think they have judged Jesus with right judgment, but it's with false judgment. And the Pharisees, they begin to become very condescending. They say, this crowd does not know him. They call them common people, ignorant people, impious people. They say ignorant on their traditions and teachings of the crowd. Sorry, they say that these folks are ignorant on their traditions, and they say they're ignorant on their teachings, and so they should be damned to hell because of it. And the irony of John, though, is he's probably there just quietly chuckling in the background. Who's really damned? Who's really accursed? The world does the same thing around us today. Our world wants a godless society. Our world wants Jesus to just be a historic figure. Our world wants Christians to just keep your beliefs to yourself. And if they don't, persecution comes. Sometimes very directly. Sometimes very indirectly. It's subtle oftentimes in our culture. And so the Pharisees, they bring in a guy named Nicodemus. We've seen him before. It's who met with Jesus in John chapter 3. Who is either at this point a disciple of Jesus who believes or will be a disciple of Jesus who believes because we saw on Good Friday that he participated with Joseph in burying Jesus. And Nicodemus, he references their law. He says that Jesus should have a proper hearing for them to make a proper judgment. He says that the accuser should have his day in court, but also the accused should have a chance to make a defense. And their response was pretty funny. Are you from Galilee? Are you with this guy? Are you with Jesus? Are you with us or are you with Jesus? Is our teaching from the Pharisees' perspective or is Jesus' teaching better in your mind, Nicodemus. And their solution was, again, ironic, don't let a prophet or the Christ come from Galilee. They don't know. He came from Galilee. He is the prophet. He is the Messiah or the Christ. They've made their judgment and they're guilty. And the gall of these folks that they don't know, they don't find and they don't believe. And they've made an incorrect judgment. In the end, Jesus is not so much a son of Galilee as the authorities think. By voicing themselves so song strongly, they exceed or succeed in displaying their ignorance. They don't know. They don't find. They don't believe. Or undivision, or unbelief will cause division. It will cause hatred. But for those who do find, who do know, and who do believe, there is life secured by the Spirit, which is eternal life, the best quality of life, a life that will last forever. And as I was thinking about this passage and John so far, I've just been considering the patience of Jesus and the disputes and the arguments. He remains quiet. In the hatred, he doesn't 
say a word oftentimes. He allows them to argue and to fight. He doesn't give up on them. He keeps teaching, though, when he does speak up. When they don't know, when they don't find, when they don't believe and receive, when we are deaf, when we are blind, when we are hard-hearted, he is still patient. He judges with right judgment, and his judgment was God's word that it was prophesied that he would come and that he would die. His judgment was his actions in fulfilling the scripture to die in our place on the cross for our sins. His judgment is the final proof and the security that we have as he glorifies us by sending of his spirit. Just like these crowds that would come to Jesus, friends, that used to be us if we, before we believed. God's grace is patient with us as well. And those responses shouldn't surprise us, but they should drive us to pray for those around us. That those who we get to share the gospel with would respond in belief, in the proper knowledge, in proper following of Jesus. And so we get to keep sharing with them when they don't know, when they don't believe, and they don't receive the Spirit. And so as we close in song, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning as we do every month, the first Sunday of the month. If you're a Christian, if you believe these things, please partake with us. If you aren't, allow the elements to pass by. It won't be awkward if you allow them to go by. As we sing the first song, My Jesus, I love thee. Consider the cross. Consider the resurrection. Consider my Jesus as the Jesus of the Bible, whom God says, my beloved son. Eric will lead us in the elements uh, after our first song, and we'll pass them out. So would you pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that you are so good, you are so patient, you are so loving, so merciful to us. Even as we have doubts and even as we have questions, as even if we have a misunderstanding of who you are and what your son has done, we thank you that you continue to reveal yourself to us. God, that which you start, you will bring to completion. God, we thank you that you Keep your promises. When you say you will save your people from their sins by belief in your Son and His substitutionary death on the cross, His resurrection from the dead to give us a newness of life, God, that you do that. And as we'll see Jesus say in a few chapters that this is eternal life. Not this will be eternal life, God, that belief in your Son it leads to eternal life today. And it will last forever. So, Father, we thank you that you're faithful to your word. Even when we bring extra things to your word and we lay our beliefs and our thoughts and our preferences over your word, that your word, as Peter said a couple weeks ago, are the words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. So we thank you and we praise you. Help us to glorify and worship you for all that you are and all that you do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and join us in song?